Hello, Radioland podcast, Phil, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Today on the show, we'll talk to Claire Hoffman about her new memoir, Greetings from Utopia Park, Surviving a Transcendent Childhood. Sandra Singh Lowe is here with a book recommendation. I think we should go to the show. Journalist Claire Hoffman has written a book. It's a memoir called Greetings from Utopia Park, Surviving a Transcendent Childhood. And we're going to talk to her about that. Claire, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. But before we talk about that, you gave the commencement address at your alma mater. <laughs> this will, this will uh, teach you not to open your mouth, right? I have, I have a really simple question. Describe what that was like. It was surreal. When I first started writing it, I was like, oh, this is going to be so funny because I'm going to tell them that I just graduated. I'm giving the commencement speech. And then I realized it had been 17 years and most of them are only <laughs> a few years older than 17. So yes, I, time flies. I had a real sort of I'm old moment in, in working on it. I, it felt amazing, actually. I Giving the speech was incredible. And then I sat on the stage as, you know, like, 400 kids get their diploma and I felt like somebody who got to see like 400 brides like their faces as they got it was so powerful and very uplifting I felt very hopeful and Santa Cruz is still Santa Cruz lots of guys doing women's studies you know uh, <laughs> it's, but there is something I just went and, and hooded someone for you know that got their MFA at, at Riverside and um, there's something about ceremonies they work. I believe in rituals. It's. I think humans have created them for a reason, and there is something about sort of creating sanctity that does move people through like a passage. And I, I, seeing all these parents out there weeping and these kids just looking like so stoked and doing their little cool like dances on the stage. <laughs> just I don't know. I loved it. It was great, and I don't love everything, so it was nice. The subtitle of the book is "Surviving a Transcendent Childhood." That refers to transcendental meditation. And Tom, take it and away. And you grew up in Fairfield, Iowa, which is the home of Maharishi International University. It's, it's, it, it was Maharishi International University until the 90s, and now it's the Maharishi University of Management. Oh, right. right. They did a name change. Right. Now, did you grow up there because that's where your family happened to be living, or is there a story that perhaps you might... <laughs> tell about how you came to be in the international capital of transcendental meditation. Thank you for setting that up for I'm me. I'm guessing there's a story. Uh, yeah. I, my dad is actually from Santa Cruz, which is where I gave my commencement speech. And my mom is from New York. And we were living in New York when my dad kind of just disappeared when I was five years old. And my mom had been super into TM, transcendental meditation. And had really seen that as kind of like a high point in her life when she had done all these meditation courses and gone to Europe to sort of learn with Mari. She had to teach TM. So she, right at that moment that my dad left, coincidentally, 
Marishi had put a call out to sort of all of his followers to move to Fairfield. And that's because he had kind of shifted the agenda for his movement from sort of personal enlightenment and meditation to the idea that groups of people practicing his form of meditation would create world peace. So it sort of switched it to, as opposed to like kind of a self-improvement technique, something that was going to create world change. And so it was this utopian community that got together in Iowa and started in the 70s, but really he put out the call in the early 80s, and that's that's when we moved there. And you're, you've been writing about religion and writing about individuals and their, their relation to religion, and you've studied religion in the meantime as well. Right. I mean, so you're you're writing a memoir about your a childhood that has a kind of spiritual track, uh, an important spiritual context, and this has become your life's work in various ways as well. Yeah, I, I love religion. I feel like not just because of where I was raised, but I find religion to be the most compelling subject. You know, the way that we sort of structure our relationship to divinity and how we define ourselves in the universe and how we sort of pursue these connections and these experiences. I love it. You know, I studied anthropology and I went back and went to divinity school and did sort of anthropology of religion and history of religion. And yeah, it's I've I've written about Scientologists and the fundamentalist Mormons, and I think and Prince yeah. is uh, Jehovah's Witness. Prince as a Jehovah's uh, Witness, right? and, yeah, uh, yeah. That was an easy one for me because my aunt is a Jehovah's Witness, so we kind of connected right away on the mm-hmm. subject. But yeah, it's it's definitely it's my thing. And as a kid, you're introduced to meditation very, very young. You got your mantra when you were three, three, three years old, <laughs> and you've been meditating ever ever since. I mean, not not every day, mm-hmm. but yes, yeah. yeah. I Can, mean, thousands of hours. And before we get too deeply into it, let's define some terms a little bit because you know you threw in the word mantra, which anybody who saw you know Annie Hall back in 1977 will remember the scene where Jeff Goldblum was on the telephone telling someone at a Hollywood party that he forgot his mantra. Uh, and I think a lot of people who don't know anything about meditation think it always involves a mantra, when in fact it does not. And TM is a very specific thing, which had a cultural moment in the 70s and 80s. And now that meditation has become so widespread, it's one of many, many kinds of meditation available to people. So could you enlighten us about what what exactly is TM and then how does it differ from the other strains of meditation that are around today? Yeah, I can enlighten you. And, and re- yeah, enlighten us. Really. <laughs> enlighten choose, being a loaded I, term for me. <laughs> I choose my verbs extremely carefully. I will they're enlighten very, you. They're very guest-specific. Uh, thank you. Yeah, so, I mean, I think the three basic kinds of meditation, as far as I understand it, are, are a mantra-based meditation, like TM. TM is a trademarked form of meditation. You have to learn through them, and you pay, you know, I think around $1,500 to $100 for that mantra and a three-day course. And then they, you know, you sort of have it for life. You can check in with them at any time. Then there is mindfulness meditation, which is, you know, there's all sorts of different kinds of mindfulness meditation. It's sort of, my understanding comes from Buddhism, and that is the idea of just sort of being in a a uh, non-judgmental place with your thoughts. I probably could say more, but... (laughs) And then the last one I would add in there is guided meditation, which is like when you're laying on the floor and some, like, cool hippie lady describes, like, an ecstatic experience flying over the lost city of Atlantis. <laughs> so what, what was it like as, as a three-year-old to be introduced to, to that idea, to such an abstract idea? 
It was fantastic. I mean, it didn't feel abstract for me. I think I saw my mom meditating every day and it was this very, it seemed like a very powerful thing. It had the ability to kind of reset my mother. I would see the way that she'd be kind of like frazzled and then she'd go meditate and emerge sort of happy. And I really wanted that. So for me, I just, it was like, oh, it's like a secret key and I want a secret key. And I had that mantra until I was 10 and I loved it. One of the things, I, I love this book. Thank you. Uh, and, and, you know, when I found out about the story of Doubting Thomas, I thought, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, that's me. I, yeah. I get that, right? I'm a completely skeptical person. And and at the same time, of course, I was a hippie myself. So I went through the every version of spiritual enlightenment, at least dipped into all of them along the way. And it was it's an important part of the way I see the world and understand the world. And like all great spiritual autobiographies, this one is riven with doubt all of the time. I mean, one of the things you don't doubt is the value of meditation itself, but you definitely doubt all of the trappings around it. Yeah, I mean, I probably, there was a time when I even... I, I I would say as a teenager, I stopped meditating entirely. I would just, my mom would tell me to go to meditate and I would go read Cosmopolitan in my room. Mm-hmm. It's um, a form of meditation. Exactly. And it, do you think that was a teenage <laughs> thing or was that, were you having an intellectual questioning moment? I think it was everything. I, I definitely was having an intellectual questioning moment. You know, I mean, for what happened in the 80s and 90s in Fairfield with the Transcendental Meditation Movement is very sort of specific, but I think it offers you know, there's a lot of parallels in other new religious movements or religious movements in general. But it was, you know, this utopian community where we thought we were pursuing world peace. We had a guru, Maharishi. Maharishi never lived there. So he he was always like in Europe or India and he would telecast in. But he offered all the sort of vision and knowledge and insight that we were following. So first of all, it was tricky because there was this enlightened person who wasn't there, who we were all kind of trying to be like and live the way he said we should live, but he wasn't there. So it was like this trickle-down game of telephone where people were always quoting him and sort of saying, no, Mari, she says, you know, pink is actually the best color, you know? Or mm-hmm. like, no, denim denim is bad, or, you know, I don't, whatever it is. Or like, you know, you can't eat onions on Saturdays. Um, <laughs> and those are like kind of made up and kind of not. My name is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 KPFK-FM. Stay tuned. Sandra Singh Lowe, who has a new play opening called The Mad Woman in the Volvo, has come back to the studio to talk about a book she's reading. Welcome, Sandra. Okay, I I think... To my mind, this is sort of cliche, but the middle-aged lady books are by Pema Chodron, which I probably said wrong. She's a Buddhist nun in the Rinpoche tradition. And when I say that, I, I can see, I can imagine somebody scowling at me, so you've said the wrong, I always say the nun, the monk's names, I think it's Rinpoche or something like that. But what's great about this kind of practice is like, she opens, she's a very down-to-earth 
Buddhist nun, which I love. And When Things Fall Apart is a book that she's written where kind of at the beginning, her husband comes home, he says he's having an affair, and she just hurls a coffee cup and is furious, and then her journey begins from there. So I like really down-to-earth, you know, Buddhist nuns because I'm just so neurotic and jumpy. And certainly when you're in middle age and you still have your careers going, it's kind of like there's some days when I can't even read the New York Times. He's like, and everyone's like, oh my God, the Sunday arts and leisure section is out. I'm going to get stabbed from behind because like my thing won't be in there. And then there's somebody who's like 40, 90 years younger that's doing the same thing that is better and look at the box office for Hamilton. I don't know why I relate to that, but somehow it's kind of like, oh, I've been in multi, why didn't I come with a hip? Now I never, why is it? Yeah. So you kind of like, I get into that. So it's like really calming down the thoughts of the mind. And it, and she says, you know, when you feel yourself going through, just call it thinking and let that thought go by. And she says, you know, the people that you hate and that agitate you, she goes, they're just representing karma of your own that's not yet resolved. So they are your tea. Like, so there's stuff that really makes sense about what, what she says, which I think is down to earth Buddhism, which is like really helpful. And then there's also now, now this, no one will have read this book and it's hilarious, but since we're in the same midlife zone, this is by Barbara Handclaw an astrologer and it's called like <laughs> I think, the liquid light of sex kundalini rising which is not at all how it sounds but she's also a very down to sort of butt kicking astrologer who says some of us are yes we are from planet you know Mars and we did come down here but that means then don't go into transcendental meditation because you're already you know going at that same bad place that you were if you're one of the people that's fallen from Mars you need to get rooted on earth and get a job it's really <laughs> so it just goes it's really tough love astrology I just find it like wildly fascinating and, and kind of a little bit crazy right I mean uh, of course yeah, well, but, I mean I'm going to follow good crazy. astrology but it's so I find sort of in midlife these narratives sometimes make a lot more sense than talk therapy. So in my play, The Mad Woman, The Volvo, there's a couples therapy scene that goes horribly wrong, just horribly wrong. And I realized in that particular time of my life, you know, I was, I broke it up for my husband. I'm in love with another man. We're sitting in therapy. And she's, she said, Sandra, you really need to take six months off and live by yourself and discover who you are. And you're going, I just blew up my marriage. My sexy hunter is here. We're going to go back to our cottage and like whatever, whatever. Yeah. And and I'm not going to follow your directions because you're not my tribal elder. You're my therapist. I pay you. What are you going to do if I don't do it? Fire me? I don't I think you need my hundreds. <laughs> like, so, so sometimes talk therapy doesn't get you. But if you have a crazy woman, I actually also saw, now this is now TMI, but it's like now you've got me on this. I saw last year a, um, what do you call this, a clairvoyant? She was fantastic. And I, 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 I never need therapy again. She was the wonderful 70-something-year-old woman who looks like Joni Mitchell from the canyon, which, first of all, I like. I want an older woman to tell me something. And she had this great, I can't do it on radio, but she, she'll go, oh, you have a lot. Do you meditate? And I go, no. She goes, you have a lot of angels. One, two, three, 14 angels. That's a lot. Hello, hello. <laughs> and she starts greeting the angels. And I feel actually really good that apparently I have so many angels. So I'm pretty sure nobody has no angels. I'm sure she never says, oh, 
I don't see any angels. That's weird. Because <laughs> like, you're paying 75 and you're going to get some angels. And then she would do those things. So she, oh, she goes, oh, and this one angel is very, very funny. I think she's a feminist. Uh, and then she peers up into the corner and she says, what? What? I want to get this girl. She goes, excuse me. And then she puts on her glasses and <laughs> peers into the corner so she can see the angel better. It was hyster- It was so amusing and hysterical. And the narrative was that I've been a woman in many ages, but I've always felt smarter. I've always been smarter than all the men, which is why I have a rebellious streak. And so I was born into this life kicking and screaming. And it's, it's pretty much a, a, a story that could work for many of us. But it, it was the best storytelling that actually put things that I go, that makes sense. Of course, I've always been. Bright. And I actually came out feeling a lot better. And it was like only like 75 bucks. I'm going to go, go to see her. And I, I want to compare how many angels. You I, should. You'll okay. love it. You'll love And she's so, you know, she looks like the Joni, the glorious cool. night of Joni Mitchell. I knew it felt crowded show. in here. And I, I didn't quite know why. <laughs> yeah. It's all the angels. Yeah, Sandra, so thanks for coming back. I've destroyed my reputation. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, you welcome, for com- Thank you for coming back <laughs> to the show. The show is The Mad Woman in the Volvo. This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. 90.7 KPFK FM. Let's go back to our conversation with Claire Hoffman. So it became very uh, sort of fundamentalist. You know, people were very engaged in pursuing this vision of heaven on earth that he had. And 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 by the 90s, uh, to, to kind of come around to when I was a teenager everything felt like it was commodified. So, you know, I mean, you know, you had to pay for the meditation, but you also had to pay for your badge to go to group meditations, which was like $100 a month. And, you know, we were supposed to be going to the Marshy School of the Age of Enlightenment, his elementary school and high school, but it was extremely expensive. And so my mom was kind of, what I saw was my mom struggling all the time to be able to afford enlightenment, which, you know, as a teenager, you're like, hypocrisy. That is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Your hypocrisy meter is, yes, it's is high. Very, very sensitive. Mm-hmm. And I mean, at the same time, you're kind of moving back and forth from the Maharishi based school to the public school in little town, tiny Fairfield, Iowa. Yeah. And kind of hanging out with the townies. Yeah. Um, it was the townies and the gurus. Townies and the ruse, and you're and you're you know smoking and drinking and doing right. teenage stuff, right? And uh, and being a kind of rock and roll punky kid. Are you talking about me getting kicked out of high school? Is that is that what you mean well, by rock and roll? Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean it was it's changed, but in definitely in the eighties and nineties, it was there was a lot of sort of town gown clash between the townies and the ruse, and understandably, I feel like, you know, they had this very sort of quaint, small-town America, and it got invaded by these, you know, people from New York and California who thought they were changing the world by levitating. I should add that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, Marishi's most advanced form of meditation involved what he called yogic flying. So, he, you know, this idea that we, they, everyone was flying together, it was, you know, I mean, it was, it was upsetting for some people. And, you know, I mean, it gave me a very binary sense of of the world in in high school you know where it was like either you live this fully enlightened you know marishi path of of life or you live you know you go home and watch tv and eat a pork chop and drink beer and um 
I couldn't really figure out which one I wanted. They both have their advantages, <laughs> clearly. Yeah. Could you trace your disaffection to a particular moment? Do you remember? Did you have a St. Paul on the road to Damascus moment? I, I did. I think it's so cool, by the way, just as a person who writes about religion, how for people who were true believers, everyone has this moment. Like, it's a real thing where you, it just snaps you out of the bubble of belief. But for me, uh, it was 1989, and I was 12 years old, and we had an emergency school assembly, and the president of the college gathered everyone to this theater, all the elementary school kids and high school kids, and everyone was so excited, and he's sitting on stage, and he's weeping, and he congratulates all of us on uh, our our meditations, which brought down the Berlin Wall, and it just was like a... It just didn't read. It just didn't make sense to me. I, you know, I hadn't been meditating a lot. Like I, I just didn't add up. I was like, "That's actually not true. That's a lie." And you know, I mean, mm. sort of sitting there looking around at everyone weeping and the great feelings that they were getting from it. You know, I mean, it really, that's it planted a seed. And then, did you look around and think these people are all crazy? I didn't because I had just moved. You know, forty-five degrees away from them. So. I think I felt more like they, you know, it felt like the emperor's new clothes. Now, is your mother still living? My mom lives there. But you've got two young kids. Yes. And how do you approach their spiritual development, or do you? You know, it's a work in progress. I have a husband who really enjoys, you know, Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and is, you know, I think he's an atheist. Sam's been in here, Uh by the way. Mm Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I disagree with his position. I'm much more pro-religion than he is, which isn't hard since he's very... Yes, young. right. <laughs> we'll tell him. <laughs> yeah. I, I think we've I've, I've interviewed him before. But he was raised uh, Jewish. And, you know, I think the place that we've been able to come together and agree is, you know, number one, meditation. And so I've had uh, my older daughter learn to meditate. She's six, so the other one's three. I think I've decided three is too early. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, and then these rituals, right? Even if you just sort of set them up within the family and observe them and sort of treat time as sacred, that's that's what we're doing right now. But that involves like a Christmas tree and a, a menorah. It sounds familiar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love the ending of this memoir, in part because... Part of the structure of the memoir is, like many, is coming to terms with a kind of a wound that you don't trust as, you know, you don't, you're not dominated by this wound, but the wound has something to do with your mother levitating and kind of, as you say, spending money for enlightenment. And that became a kind of symbol for what was, what was wrong with your own childhood. And so you decide as part of this memoir project to go back to Fairfield in order to study it yourself. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things in there, but I I went back a year after my first daughter was born and I took the yoga flying course and I was feeling sort of like, yeah, just that, that things weren't adding up totally for me. I felt a lot of nostalgia for my childhood, which I hadn't expected and I hadn't felt before and, and, and concerned that my kid was going to grow up and be like a normal kid. Uh, oh yeah, that's a, that is a t- terrible idea. I know. You, know, you, don't, you don't want that. I, all I wanted when I was little was to be normal. And then, you know, once I had a kid, I was like, oh no, you can't. Yeah. We can't have that. And you don't want to beat them. 
no. Right. I mean, that's that that's one option, but yeah, yeah no, yeah. I didn't, I haven't been doing that so mm. far, but yeah. life is long. So yeah, I did it and it was this unexpected experience for me in some ways. I mean, it didn't, it's not something I continue to do. I don't practice yogic flying regularly, but, you know, having the experience, which was a very strange and kind of cosmic experience for one of there's not great vocabulary in this realm i feel like but you know this sort of really transcendent moment with uh the yogic flying i did feel this sense of like understanding and forgiveness with my mom in that you know she did spend a lot of time pursuing this goal and a lot of you know a lot of time away from us she was meditating in these group meditations three to four hours a day and then she was working all the time and you know i was a kid who like missed their mom and single mm -hmm. mom and I felt this sense of forgiveness where I understood like how big it had felt for her and how important. And I felt it for an instant and it was gone, but it was, it was definitely important for me. I appreciate you saying that you like the end of the book. I will say that, you know, in the realm of the internet, there's a lot of kids who I grew up with, and there are a certain faction that are very angry at the TM movement, very, very angry. Uh -huh. And they enjoyed the book and have let me know they enjoyed the book, but there is there's certainly people who feel like I should have dropped the hammer. So as opposed to this process for me of moving beyond hypocrisy and doubt to something like forgiveness and the complexity of like that the TM movement gave me something really amazing and that at times it was, it was, you know, not great. And yeah. that, that I have to kind of exist with that duality. They don't like that. Well, see that. And of course, that's exactly what I love about it. And especially there's a, there's a moment where when you're taking this course, as people achieve velocity or altitude, <laughs> yeah. uh, they, then they graduate, they're done. Right. right. And they, and they move out. And so at one point it's just like you and Two other yeah. losers, I think, is what you <laughs> yeah. call, call yourselves, yeah. left in the course. And you're, you know, part of it is a little bit of self-loathing that right. you haven't managed it. And part of it is real doubt that there's anything there to be found. And then all of a sudden, you are, in fact, flying you fly into a like a I, post. Yeah, right? I, I mean, flew into a column. I, I bounced. <laughs> I bounced messily. I did not fly. I mean, I, I whatever. I yeah. just love that slapstick. That's both kind of enlightenment and and right. you know in that kind of great Zen comic tradition of enlightenment, which is also a, a humiliation of sorts. Yes, right. It was just a, it's a beautiful moment. I, I definitely in that moment felt this thing of I've studied religion. I'm interested in groups. I'm a cynical journalist you know if you have a group that's supposed to achieve something and you slowly have people leave <laughs> you know there's a lot of pressure and you want it to happen you know so there's that part of my brain where I'm like and I felt like I had to turn all of that off in order to have this experience and that sort of that's the crux for me, you know, is that I have both of those things inside. I want that experience and I long for it, but I also have this analytical, judgmental, cynical part of me that is narrating. Exactly why it works. It's what makes for a complex and compelling book, which is called Greetings from Utopia Park, Surviving a Transcendent Childhood. Claire Hoffman, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience. 
Thanks to our crack production assistant, Ernesto Orleano. Czar of scheduling, Ashley Bean. Thanks to Maria Alexa Kavanaugh. Thanks to Claire Hoffman. Thanks to Sandra Singh Lowe. And thanks to Emerson College for letting us use their beautiful studios. Find us on the web at www.lareviewbooks.org. Download us on iTunes or wherever podcasts are available. Follow us on Twitter. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. Thanks for listening. See you next week.